0: Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies colloquium series podcast. Each episode of our colloquium series podcast features a member of the center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Brian Carl of the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception giving a talk entitled, The Multiplicity of Divine Attributes in Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas. And without further ado, our podcast.
1: All right, thank you yeah, for that uh, kind introduction and uh, for the invitation to come and speak at uh, the colloquium here. Uh, I've been able to make a couple of these colloquia uh, earlier in the semester and they're really enjoyable. Um, uh, just my schedule has kept me away for <laughs> most of the semester. Uh, sabbatical semesters turn out to be your most busy semesters in some odd ways. Um, Alright, so there is a handout uh, that hopefully has, uh, has made the rounds, um, and with that I'm just going to dive right in. So the question of whether or how one can reconcile claims about absolute simplicity or unity with the attribution of a multiplicity of perfections is of perennial importance throughout the history of Greek, Latin, and Arabic reflection on the first principle of all things. Within the theological culture of the 13th century Latin West, considerable attention and controversy surrounded the question of how to reconcile the absolute simplicity of God with the multiplicity of the divine attributes. It's easy to see why this is so. In most cases, the multiplicity of terms that we predicate of a thing corresponds to some sort of complexity or composition within that thing. As, for example, wise and just signify distinct perfections that exist distinctly in Socrates such that although Socrates is both wise and just his wisdom is not his justice when it comes to God however we assert that by virtue of his simplicity whatever is in God is God so that his justice is his wisdom and each of these is really identical with his essence In recent discussions of divine simplicity among philosophers of religion who engage with medieval philosophy, the issues in primary focus have not been those at issue in, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae Prima Pars Question 3. That is, recent philosophers have been concerned primarily not with enumerating the modes of composition to be denied concerning the divine essence. Rather, they've been concerned with making sense of the claim that each of the attributes is really identical with all of the others and with the divine essence, paying particular attention to cases where the conceptual content of one divine attribute would seem to be inconsistent with another or directly inconsistent with simplicity. Surprisingly, however, these recent discussions of the divine simplicity have made virtually no reference to some of the key texts in which mid 13th century figures especially Thomas himself, have discussed the multiplicity of the attributes directly. So my purpose today is to present some elements of Thomas's understanding of the multiplicity of the attributes that have been largely neglected in recent literature, particularly as Thomas discusses these issues in two articles in his Early Sentences Commentary. To provide proper context for Thomas's position, we'll first examine a parallel treatment by his teacher, St. Albert the Great. Both Albert and Thomas are committed to the view that there is only a distinction secundum rationem between the divine attributes. They disagree, however, about whether this distinction and whether the very multiplicity of the attributes is entirely on the side of the human mind or if the distinction and multiplicity of the attributes have some foundation in God himself and Thomas would seem to articulate his own view as a critical response to Albert's position. Although the notion of Thomas's distinction secundum rationem with a foundation ex parte rei on the part of the thing is generally familiar among Thomists due to the prevalence of this notion in the later Thomistic tradition, the pivotal text in which Thomas articulates this notion is only rarely examined in recent literature, and no interpreters have yet brought this text to bear in recent discussions of divine simplicity. So what I will present today is a portion of a larger study that seeks to address this lacuna. Okay, With that, um, I have first, the first section is just a brief terminological clarification concerning the term attribute. So although it is common in English to use the term attribute to refer to any of the terms predicated of the divine essence, it's important to clarify that what is at issue in the sentences text that we'll be examining is the multiplicity of positive divine names, such as goodness and wisdom, rather than negative divine names, such as simplicity or infinity. So by a negative divine name, I mean a divine name that serves to remove something from or deny something of God, as the term simple serves to deny composition in God. A negative divine name may be the predicate of a true affirmative proposition concerning God, but its predication does not posit anything in Him. A positive divine name, by contrast, does posit something in God, albeit always analogically rather than univocally. Positive divine names are taken from perfections first known to us in creatures. So when Albert and Thomas speak of attributa in the texts that we'll examine today, they clearly have in mind the divine perfections signified by positive names like wisdom and goodness, rather than by negative divine names. Okay. Uh, and this will be important to keep in mind. Now, the distinction and multiplicity of the positive divine names poses a special difficulty. Whereas the distinction and multiplicity of the negative names is more easily accounted for. The predication of a negative name is equivalent in meaning to a negative proposition that denies that God possesses some characteristic. And so the negative names of God are distinct just because the creaturely things that they remove from God are distinct. For example, that composition and mutability are distinct features of created things sufficiently accounts for the distinction between divine simplicity and divine immutability. And because a negation posits nothing in the subject of the negation, there need not be any worry that the distinction of the negative names implies any kind of real multiplicity in God. And so in this way, the multiplicity of the negative names can be explained entirely in terms of multiplicity found in creatures. So the question really that uh, we're facing when looking at these texts in Albert and Thomas is whether a similar account will suffice for the multiplicity of the positive attributes. As we will see, Albert accepts that such an account is successful, but Thomas will argue that the multiplicity of the attributes must be in some way on the part of God himself. Okay, so now I'll be moving into uh, section two uh, concerning St. Albert and his theory of distinction through connoted effects. In his gloss on the sentences of Peter the Lombard, book one, Distinction two, Alexander Hales observes, in a brief and almost offhand way. This is text number two on your handout. Quote, the multitude of divine names is not by reason of the essence which is named, but is rather by reason of a relation which is indicated or noted with respect to things. By this, Hales expresses briefly what was already a frequently held position concerning the multiplicity of divine attributes, that they are multiple just insofar as created things, that is, God's effects, are plural. We find in Albert's commentary on First Sentences Distinction 3 a more fully articulated position concerning the multiplicity of the divine attributes that's fundamentally in line with Hale's brief formula. So Albert's commentary on First Sentences Distinction 3, Article 4, asks simply whether the attributes are one or many. He begins by referencing the claim in Romans 1.20, which is also cited in the text of the Lombard, about the, quote, invisible things of God that are made known to us through creatures. And Albert objects that it seems unfitting to refer to the divine attributes in the plural. Quote, since the attributes signify the essence, and thus they are one, not many, whence they ought to be signified in the singular rather than in the plural. So Albert takes for granted that the divine divine attributes signify the divine essence. But the divine essence is one and simple, and so the attributes must be one, and they should be signified in the singular. We 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 should say there is one attribute. But Albert then proposes his solution, and this is text number three. Quote, It must be said that the attributes are compared to two things, namely, to the substance of the cause in which they exist and to the effects that they connote. And in the first way, they signify one thing because of simplicity, whence it cannot be inferred if God is goodness and wisdom that he is two, because this is a comparison to the cause in which the attributes exist. The attributes are compared in another way to the things they connote. And in this way, they are in a qualified sense plural, but not simply or absolutely plural, because they are signified as the rationes of several things. Okay, so we find here an elaboration fundamentally consistent with Hale's brief remark that the multiplicity of the attributes arises by reason of a relation which is indicated or noted with respect to things although albert prefers to say that created effects are connoted rather than noted presumably because the divine attributes signify the divine essence rather than created effects it follows on this account though that the multiplicity of the divine attributes is in no way on the part of god himself because of his simplicity albert then goes on to argue that plurality is also consignified rather than signified by the plural form of the term attributa and the same would go for the plural uh, form invisibilia in romans 120. and albert insists that a consignified plurality is a plurality in only a qualified sense and so along these lines he points out this is a and this is funny he points out paul said invisibilia he didn't say plura invisibilia, right? Okay. You didn't use the word many, so there's no problem. Okay. All right. So here, Albert adapts the notion of consignification from Aristotle's De Interpretatione three, where it is said that verbs consignify time by their tensed conjugation. In a similar way, Albert indicates here that a plural noun consignifies plurality. Albert concludes that, in reality and absolutely speaking, the divine attributes are one in the unity of the divine essence. We may think and speak of them as many, only insofar as the names signifying these attributes connote the many distinct effects through which we derive the names of the attributes. Albert then proposes an image, um, almost certainly inspired by a text from the uh, divine names of Pseudo-Dionysius, of a circle whose center might be thought or spoken of as the principles, in the plural, of the infinite number of lines that can be drawn from that center to the circle's circumference. These, I'm going to keep doing scare quotes, these principles are one in reality, as they are all just the center of the circle. They are many only with reference to the many distinct lines that can be drawn from the center. In the same way, Albert says, we may speak of divine attributes in the plural, but they are all just the divine essence regarded as the principles of various created effects. And so Albert's solution to the problem of the multiplicity of the divine attributes in this text is straightforward. He eliminates the problem by placing the multiplicity of the attributes on the side of the created effects connoted by positive divine names. Okay, now moving into section 3 and the back side of your handout. <clears throat> so turning now to St. Thomas, I'm going to focus on two articles from his Early Sentences commentary. In the commentary, as it has come down to us, these two articles appear in succession as articles 2 and 3 of the only question on Distinction 2 of Book 1. It has long been known by scholars, however, that Article Three, sometimes referred to as the Quaestio de attributis was not in Thomas's sentence's commentary as first lectured and circulated, but was a later composition that Thomas inserted into his commentary. Until recently, however, it was thought that this Article Three dated to Thomas's time in Rome after 1265, but Father Adriano Oliva of the Leonine Commission has more recently provided convincing evidence that Thomas composed this text most likely in 1253 to 1254, after the initial circulation of his commentary on first sentences but before its definitive revision. This Article Three provides a lengthy elaboration and defense of a rather provocative assertion on Thomas's part in his original Article II, namely, that the distinction and multiplicity of the divine attributes is not entirely on the part of the human mind distinguishing the attributes, but is somehow ex parte dei. Now I'm going to frequently leave the term ratio untranslated in my discussion of Thomas's text. Okay. I do this because it's notoriously difficult to translate, but more importantly, Thomas is going to provide a very careful explanation of what he means by the term ratio in this context. Uh, and that explanation is going to serve us better than even the best of translations of this term. Okay. In most other contexts, I'm content with intelligible content as a of you know, translation for Ratio. But um, this is not one of those contexts. Okay. All right. The second article of the question on distinction two asks whether in God there are several attributes. This is the same question posed by Albert in the parallel text that we looked at. In the body of this article, Thomas proceeds in three phases. In the first phase, he argues for two claims, both of which are in line with Albert's account. First, because a a cause must possess the perfection it causes in a more excellent and noble way, it follows that the perfections found in creatures must exist in God in a most excellent way without imperfection. Second, these attributed perfections must be absolutely one in God because of his highest simplicity. And so wisdom, goodness, and similar attributes are each in God in that each is the divine essence itself, so that they are all one in reality. So far, again, Thomas's position is entirely in line with Albert's. In the second phase of Article 2, however, Thomas proceeds to argue, and this is text number four on your handout, let me just make sure that that's true. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, okay. Now, I haven't translated it here, I'll be translating as we go parts of it, um, but I've left it untranslated on the handout for the moment, Uh, but the Latin is there, okay. All right, Thomas proceeds to argue that because each of the attributes is in God, quote, according to its truest ratio, and the ratio of wisdom is not the ratio of goodness, it follows that these attributes are distinct in ratio, quote, not only on the part of the one reasoning, ex parte ipsius ratio cenantis, but by the character of the thing itself, ex proprietate ipsius rei, that is, on the part of the divine essence. Thomas continues by noting that it follows from this claim that God is not a purely equivocal cause of things and that he produces effects analogically similar to himself. He notes that God is the exemplar of all things, not only with regard to the divine ideas, but also according to the divine attributes, which are, quote, in his nature. So Thomas clearly means to indicate that he thinks that these theses about the analogical community between God and his creatures and the exemplar causality of the divine essence that he thinks these theses cannot be defended other than by placing the rationes of the attributes and their distinction from one another somehow in God himself. Why should this be so? Well, as Thomas explains elsewhere in purely equivocal predication of a name, the rationes according to which the name is predicated are utterly diverse. So Thomas's concern seems to be that if the rationes of the distinct attributes were not somehow in God, then there could only ever be pure equivocation when one says, for example, that both God and creatures are wise. This raises the question of what it means in any case to say that the ratio of a name is in the thing of which the name is predicated. And Thomas says nothing about this in Article 2, uh, thankfully, he composed Article Three a couple of years later. Okay. So we'll come back to that question. But having departed in this second phase of Article II from Albert's position by holding that the distinct rationes of the attributes are somehow ex parte dei, Thomas proceeds in a third phase to criticize the view that the divine attributes differ and are thus plural only by what these names connote in creatures. And he offers two arguments. First, a cause does not receive anything from its effect, but vice versa. Thomas insists that God is not wise because the creature receives wisdom from him. Rather, the creature is wise because it imitates its cause, the divine wisdom. We cannot say that the existence of divine wisdom or divine goodness depends upon the fact that God causes wisdom or goodness in creatures. But if divine wisdom differs from divine goodness only by the connotation of wisdom and goodness as distinct effects, then it seems that the fact that God is truly wise or truly good, and that these are distinct truths, would depend upon the existence of the distinct effects. Thomas gets at this difficulty even more directly in the second argument, observing that it must be true from all eternity that God is good and wise, even if no creatures were ever to exist. But if divine wisdom differed from divine goodness only by the connotation of distinct effects, then the truth that God is wise, and that this proposition has a meaning distinct from the proposition God is good, All of this would depend upon the fact that created wisdom exists as an effect distinct from created goodness and other created perfections. Thus, it cannot be the case, Thomas concludes, that what distinguishes divine goodness from divine wisdom is only the connotation of God's distinct effects. I think we can make a similar point with respect to Albert's image of a circle whose center can be regarded as the principles of many lines. A line is co-defined by two points. And so the fact that the center is the principle of a given line is dependent upon a point distinct from the center. That is, the fact that the center is distinctly both the principle of this line AB and the principle of that line AC depends upon the distinction between point B and point C on the circumference of the circle. So I think Albert's image does effectively represent his position concerning the multiplicity of the divine attributes, that their multiplicity is by virtue of connoted effects and is in no way on the side of God. But in turn, I think the circle image clarifies the force of Thomas's criticism. The center of a circle is many, as the principles of many lines only insofar as the points that co-define those lines are already identified as distinct from that center. If the distinction and plurality secundum rationem of divine goodness and wisdom is only accounted for in virtue of the distinction and plurality of created goodness and wisdom as creaturely effects, then the distinct meaning and truth of God is wise and of God is good is made dependent upon the existence of wisdom and goodness as distinct effects. So it is against this view that Thomas insists in Article 2 that the distinction in ratio between one divine attribute and another must be not entirely on the part of the one reasoning, but also somehow on the part of God. Uh, Taking just a very brief aside, turning momentarily to some contemporary literature on divine simplicity, I just want to point out that Norman Kretzmann and Eleanor Stump in their well-known article on divine simplicity from the 80s employ an image that might be regarded as a more elaborate variation on Albert's image of a circle. I'm just going to read the first and the last sentences of what I gave you in text number five. So this is Stump and Kretzmann, quote, Perfect power and perfect knowledge are precise analogs for the morning star and the evening star, non-synonymous expressions designating quite distinct manifestations of one and the same thing. And they're talking about God as God is perfect power and perfect knowledge. And then jumping to the last sentence. And perfect power is identical with perfect knowledge does not entail that power is identical with knowledge any more than the fact that the summit of a mountain's east slope is identical with the summit of its west slope entails the identity of the slopes. So Stump and Kretzmann propose the image of a mountain with distinct slopes but a single summit. In place of a circle with a center and radii, we have a cone with an apex and its slopes. Uh, I had to look this up, but technically the, the, the generating lines of its lateral surface, okay? I would have just said the sides. Okay. (laughs) All right. In any event, in uh, Stump and Kretzman's image, knowledge and power are distinct created effects, distinct manifestations of the divine cause, just as the slopes of a mountain or cone are distinct. But perfect knowledge and perfect power are really identical, just as there is a single summit or apex. The image of a mountain or cone, I think, does add something to the image of a circle in that whereas the center of Albert's circle is an analog for the divine essence as the cause of many distinct effects in the way of causality, I think we can say that Stump and Kretzmann's mountain or cone adds something of the via eminencia, the way of eminence, identifying God as the supremely perfect cause in which the distinct perfections of creatures are united in simplicity. But even having acknowledged this elaboration, I think that Stump and Kretzmann's use of their image suggests that their understanding of the multiplicity of the attributes is fundamentally in line with Albert's. But if this is so, it also suggests their account may be susceptible to Thomas's criticisms. For a conceptual distinction between the summit of the eastern slope and the summit of the western slope obtains only insofar as those slopes are distinct from the summit. The one summit is only many summits with reference to the many distinct slopes. But if we think about the divine attributes according to this image, it suggests that God is powerful and God knows that these propositions seem to be true and distinctly meaningful only if he makes creatures in which power and knowledge are distinct. Okay, with that brief digression aside, uh, we'll move on to the content of Thomas's Article 3 this provides this article provides an explanation and defense of his claim that the ration by which the divine attributes differ are in god and not only in the human mind now as i indicated before this article three was composed within a couple of years after thomas's initial lecture on book one thomas's criticisms of the theory of connoted effects in his article two and his insistence that the distinction and plurality of the attributes must somehow be ex parte dei may have provoked some immediate controversy. Uh, But this was likely exacerbated by the publication of the commentary on first sentences by Thomas's Dominican brother, Peter Tarentes, the future Pope Blessed Innocent V, who likely commented on first sentences in the academic year after Thomas. So there's a, a very interesting story to be told here about Peter Tarentese's role in the larger affair and controversy in the 1250s and 1260s about this issue. I'd be happy to comment on that during Q&A if anyone is interested. Okay. All right. At the outset of this Article Three, the Quaestio de attributis. Thomas insists upon the importance of the theses that he's going to defend, asserting that, quote, Almost the entire understanding of everything said in the first book of the sentences depends upon this. As one of the lengthiest articles in all of Thomas's sentences commentary, Article 3 is going to defy any quick, comprehensive summary of its contents. But thankfully, Thomas, this is it's a marvelously organized article. He actually tells you what are the things he needs to to establish. Thomas tells us explicitly what he regards as the four issues that need to be settled in this text. I'm seeing nodding like people are familiar with this text, so this is good. Okay. Okay. All right, so the four issues he has to address. First, the meaning of the term ratio. Second, how it is that a ratio may ever be said to exist or not exist in a thing. Third, whether the rationes by which the attributes differ are in God. And fourth, whether the plurality of the rationes is itself in some way on the part of God. All right, so first, Thomas begins by telling us that a ratio is, quote, that which the intellect apprehends concerning the signification of a name. And among those things that have a definition, this is the definition of the thing. So, for example, the ratio of wisdom, taken as a divine attribute, is just what the intellect apprehends concerning the signification of wisdom taken as a divine name. Now, Thomas tells us here that typically, a ratio is the same as the definition of the thing named. But here, we should be mindful of some important background in Aristotle's Metaphysics, Book 7, where Aristotle says that, quote, every definition is a logos, and every logos has parts. As Thomas explains in his later commentary on this passage, a logo or ratio, uh, sorry, a ratio or logos is, quote, "a certain composition of names ordered by reason." So the ratio that a name signifies is so called. It's called a ratio because it is itself something ordered or arranged by ratio, that is by the power of reason. This understanding of the term ratio clarifies how we should read the phrase, ex parte ipsius ratio cenantis. On the part of the one reasoning, fine, but perhaps we might better say, on the part of the one forming the ratio. This reading of ratio cenantis is in fact confirmed by Thomas's rephrasing of his thesis at the end of article three, where he uses the expression, quote, on the part of our intellect forming diverse conceptions of God which are said to be diverse in ratio. So it's consequently very important to emphasize that when we speak of a distinction secundum rationem, we mean this primarily with respect to ratio as it has been defined here, that is something formed by the mind to express what the mind apprehends rather than simply with respect to the power of reason. So. Uh, to take another example, if I say that truth as a transcendental is distinct secundum rationem from being, the primary force of this expression is that they are distinct with respect to the rationes formed by the mind, rather than that they are distinct just as far as the human mind is concerned. If we translate secundum rationem just as according to reason, presumably in contrast with what is according to reality, then we run the risk of treating distinctions secundum rationem as fake or made-up distinctions. To put the point another way, it's important that we understand the opposition between what is secundum rationem and what is secundum rem, at least in this context, in terms of ratio and res as two elements of the so-called semantic triangle, rather than just according to the opposition between mind or reason on the one Mm -hmm. hand, and reality on the other. Okay. Coming back to the text of Article Three, St. Thomas has told us that typically, a ratio is a definition. However, not everything that has a ratio has a definition. For example, Thomas says, the ratio of quality, that is one of the 10 categories, cannot be a definition because as a supreme genus, quality cannot be defined through a genus indifference. Concerning the name said of God, then, Thomas claims that, quote, the ratio of the wisdom which is said of God is what is conceived concerning the signification of this name, even though the divine wisdom itself cannot be defined. All right, so that's Thomas's explanation of what a ratio is, at least in this context. Okay, the second issue. How is a ratio ever said to be in a thing outside the mind? Thomas explains that a ratio is in a thing, quote, in so far as in the thing outside the mind, there is something that corresponds to the conception of the mind as the signified corresponding to the sign. There's something outside the mind corresponding to the mind's conception as the signified to the sign. So I take the ambiguity of Thomas's something here to be crucial. The conception is exclusively in the mind as its subject, but insofar as outside the mind there is something corresponding to this conception as its signatum, as what it signifies or represents, then the ratio apprehended concerning the name is said to exist in the extra thing. This occurs, Thomas goes on to explain, when the intellect's conception is a similitude of what exists outside the mind in such a way that, quote, the thing itself, by its conformity to the intellect, makes it to be that the intellect's intention is true and that the name signifying that understood intention is said properly of the thing. So, a ratio is in a thing outside the mind, when what is signified by a name through that ratio is in the thing, and this occurs properly when the intellect's concept is a similitude of the thing, such that the conformity of the thing and the mind makes the intellect's conception true. Just to make uh, one more brief nod at some of the recent literature on divine simplicity, um, especially the work uh, done by Jeffrey Brower, I would just note the presence of uh, truth-making language in Thomas's account of the multiplicity of attributes in Article Three, um, And I would just suggest there's a lot more support for something like Brower's position in the contemporary debates in Thomas's text than Brower's citations of Thomas would indicate. Okay. All, right. Okay. All right, so that was the second issue. Now the third issue. The lengthiest part of Article Three is devoted to defending the claim that the rationes of the attributes are in God in the sense just distinguished. Thomas frames his answer to this question with reference to two sets of opinions about the meanings of positive divine names, the opinions of Avicenna and Maimonides on the one hand and of Dionysius and Anselm on the other. In brief, he attributes to Avicenna and Maimonides together an account of the meaning of positive divine names limited to the ways of negation and causality, such that every positive assertion about God is either really the denial of something or merely the claim that God is the causal source of the perfection in question or only a comparison that God's effects are in some way like a creature's effects. By contrast, Thomas recognizes in both Dionysius and Anselm a complementary way of eminence that holds that, quote, whatever of perfection is in creatures exists preeminently in God. And he explains that the preeminence of these perfections is itself understood in three ways. First, with respect to universality, since all perfections, which are not joined together in any one creature, are united in God. Second, with regard to plenitude, since God possesses every perfection without deficiency or limitation. And third, with regard to unity, since the perfections that are diverse in creatures are really one in God. On this view, the concepts formed by our intellect concerning the signification of the divine names are, quote, truly similitudes of the thing which is God, although deficient and not complete, just as is the case with other things that are similar to God, that is, creatures themselves. So given the thesis articulated above that a ratio is properly in a thing, as the proximate foundation of a concept when the concept is a similitude of the thing it follows that the rationes of the attributes are not only in the intellect but are in god as the proximate foundation of the concepts corresponding to these names okay issue four finally concerning whether the multiplicity of the rationes obtains in any way on the part of god himself Thomas explains that the plurality of these rationes arises from the fact that God exceeds our intellect. The human intellect cannot, by one concept that it forms, grasp the divine essence, in part because it only receives knowledge of perfections from creatures, in which these perfections are diverse, existing according to diverse forms, but more fundamentally because the human intellect is infinitely surpassed by what Thomas calls the omnimodal perfection of the divine essence. And as he often does in parallel discussions later in his career, Thomas cites a text from scripture, Zechariah 14, 9, quote, in that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. In support of the claim that it is only in the beatific vision that the necessary multiplicity of the divine names will be overcome. There is, therefore, Thomas concludes, something in God that corresponds, in a way, to the many concepts of the divine names. This something is not any real plurality in God. It is, rather, the universal, infinite, united divine perfection, which exceeds the power of any created intellect in its plenitude and its simultaneous possession of every mode of perfection. And so what Thomas has done in this text is to provide a reason why there must be a multiplicity of attributes. And in so doing, he can claim that the very multiplicity of the attributes is itself a reflection of and corresponds to the plenitude of the divine perfection. All right. Uh, To bring things full circle, if you will, uh, I want to conclude discussion of Article 3 by looking at what St. Thomas does with the image of a circle. He brings up a version of this image in responding to the sixth and final objection of Article 3. Now, the objection had cited a text from Damascene's De Fide Orthodoxa claiming that everything in God is one apart from the relations constituting the persons of the Trinity. Thomas responds to this objection by agreeing that all of the divine attributes are one in reality. However, he says, and this is text number six, something is one in reality and multiple in ratio when the one reality corresponds to diverse conceptions and names in such a way that they are all verified of it. Just as a point, which, although it is one in reality, corresponds in truth to diverse conceptions made concerning it, whether as it is regarded in itself, or is regarded as a center, or is regarded as a principle of lines. And these rationes, or conceptions, are in the intellect, as in a subject, and in the point, as in the foundation of the truth of these conceptions. Uh, he has to add this last part. However, this example is not in every way fitting like any other images introduced concerning the divine. Um, uh, please don't tell my students that I actually gave you a handout with pictures on it. I'm constantly giving them a hard time in class. If we're doing metaphysics, we shouldn't have recourse to images, but my authors are using images. Okay, but Thomas has to throw that in there, right? Any images like this are going to be unfitting in some way. Okay. Alright, unlike Albert's use of the circle image, where the single center is many only insofar as it is regarded as the principles of distinct lines, instead Thomas asserts that a point is many in ratio just insofar as there are diverse conceptions truly corresponding to it. The image is imperfect, Thomas acknowledges, presumably because one can only regard a point as a center or as a principle of lines, with reference to other things besides the point. But in any event, a point is many in ratio, just insofar as many conceptions truly correspond to it. In the same way, the divine essence is one in reality and many in ratio, insofar as there are many conceptions truly corresponding to it. Okay, a few final concluding remarks. In no later text, does Thomas again directly pose the question about the multiplicity of the divine attributes in the way that he does in Articles 2 and 3 of this commentary on Distinction 2. This makes the question of whether Thomas's account in Article 3 should be taken as his definitive view a difficult question, um, and I'm going to punt concerning that question today. Okay. Uh, but if anyone wants to ask uh, what I think about that in q and I'll be happy to talk about it. Uh, nevertheless, Article Three remains an extremely important text for the later Thomistic tradition as the source of the distinction secundum rationem with a real foundation, and it is a text that needs to be brought to bear in contemporary discussions of divine simplicity. So I'm going to leave you with just a brief indication of what I take to be the most important implications of Thomas's account of the multiplicity of the divine attributes. Because the multiplicity of the attributes secundum rationem is a necessary consequence of the infinite plenitude of the divine perfection relative to the human intellect. This means that human reasoning concerning God must conform itself to, rather than attempt to ignore or overcome this multiplicity in ratio. As I said above, it's important not to regard distinctions secundum rationem as fake or made up distinctions. Rather, the human mind can only be truthfully conformed to reality when it has drawn all of the appropriate distinctions secundum rationum. But I would suggest that both in recent discussions of divine simplicity and in the broader Thomistic tradition, we sometimes encounter tendencies to try to ignore or to overcome this multiplicity in ratio when it comes to our reasoning about God. So I'll just give a couple of very brief examples drawing in broad strokes. In recent discussions of divine simplicity, I would observe that many objections against the coherence or plausibility of divine simplicity involve arguments that effectively attempt to collapse the distinction secundum rationum between the attributes by substituting the ratio of one attribute for the ratio of another. As for example, when one worries that the immutability of the divine essence or the necessity of God's existence should imply the necessity of his willing. In the broader Thomistic tradition, I think we also find a tendency across many centuries into the 20th century to attempt to overcome the necessary multiplicity of the attributes by finding one single notion that constitutes our understanding of the divine essence, seeking a radical unity in our knowledge of God comparable to definitional knowledge. But as Thomas has insisted in Article 3, not everything that has a ratio has a definition. And in this life, the multiplicity of the rationes by which we understand the divine essence is insuperable. It is only in the life to come, Thomas tells us, that, quote, the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash tomisticstudies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at sttom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot slash c-t-s. ¶¶